Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Thursday, July 28th, 2022. I'm John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Media commentary columnist Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And associate editor and author of The Rise of the New Puritans, Noah Rothman. Hi, Ro- hi, 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 Noah. Hi, Ron. Hi, Ron. Hi, Ron. Hi, Ron. Rastro, Ranku Rorge. <laughs> um, okay, so uh, the economy uh, shrunk for the second straight quarter uh, by, uh, is it 0.2%, I believe? Um, 0.9, just under a percent. Oh my God, 0.9. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, all right, so uh, I just want to point out two things, one of which is that uh, the this is bad news it's incredibly bad news uh and we are rewriting the laws of economics not that there are laws to economics but um we shouldn't there shouldn't be a recession at a time of labor shortage um and it's even a little hard to have a recession at a time of high inflation so something new is going on here uh that uh economists don't understand and that is very confusing the second thing is that we began hearing at the beginning of the week all this talk from Brian Deese, the chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors and others, that we should not say that uh, two quarters of consecutive negative growth constitutes uh, a recession, uh, that we shouldn't say that. Uh, that's not how recessions are determined, uh, which was news to me and a lot of people, though it is apparently technically true that in the world of those who determine recessions there is a group that determines recessions at the national bureau of economic research a year after uh, a recession happens and says yes it's a recession but i i do want to point out that uh the biden people got their wish to some extent because rather than the media saying okay there are two consecutive quarters of negative growth we are therefore in a recession the New York Times and the Washington Post greeted the news as follows. In the Washington Post, quote, U.S. economy shrinks again in second quarter, reviving recession fears. Subhead, there are still mounting concerns about the U.S. economy's resilience. Inflation is at 40-year highs, home sales are weakening, and even the red-hot labor market is beginning to show cracks. So that's the Washington Post. And the New York Times says, quote, GDP report shows a drop banning fears of a U.S. recession. Okay, so Brian Dees and the spinmeisters at the White House have gotten their wish. They have the mainstream media not calling what uh, would conventionally be called a recession a recession and uh, mazel tov. Congratulations. They, they spun them. They spun it out. They have their lackeys in the media who are terrified of a Republican resurgence in November. Uh, carrying their water for them, but Noah and a- Abe, you don't think that this is uh, that this is actually all that helpful to them. I don't, because the the story about the effort to spin became a whole separate story, and it it doesn't it it draws additional attention and negative attention on the administration. I mean, because it it shows them clearly not squarely facing what's happening while Americans very clearly know what is happening. So I, I, I only think this this makes them look um, 
deceptive and uh, cowardly on top of having having um, having proceeded over uh, inflation and now recession. Well, it, it is a repeat of the, what they did with inflation, right? Remember, it was, oh, it's transit. First, it wasn't happening. Then it was, oh, just suck it up. It's only happening to rich people. Then it was transitory. They kept changing the story until finally they couldn't avoid it anymore. So all of these news outlets that are saying, I, CNBC said, you know, oh, it's a strong recession signal. So like you say, they're they're refusing to call it recession. But if they're if it's just a signal, if it's just a warning, eventually they'll have to confront whether or not it's happening. But as Abe says, people are experiencing this. So to be to be kind of gaslit in this way by an administration that is doing very little uh, besides rebranding uh, failed legislative attempts of the past few years to fight inflation, no one's buying it. It's just it, it is. It's it's marketing. Noah, are you yeah. with Christine and Abe? Yeah, I think I tweeted about this a week ago or so that it'll just compound the problems of presiding over economic hardship to commit yourself to semantic games because everybody knows what you're doing. You're trying to game yourself out of a political headache, whereas what everybody else is dealing with is economic hardship. It makes you seem out of touch, uh, makes you seem like your priorities aren't straight. Uh, and it's exactly the problem that inflation presented with the administration. They tried to clever themselves out of a problem and they ended up making it a bigger problem. I have a theory as to why the press is enlightening us now about the genuine definition of uh, of a, a recession. They ha- and I've gone back in the in the record and they have done this before to clarify that the two quarters is really a colloquial definition. And there's the uh, National Bureau of Economic uh, Research actually has a series of complex metrics, they, they do it in passing, but they've never really done a full court press like this. Why? Because in the last 40 years, I submit, every recession has occurred under a Republican president's watch. 1969, 1973, so because this occurs under a Democrat, which is very odd for, for when it comes to these cycles, um, you have no choice but to spin it out because it's happening to their team for the first time in a very long time. I, I, that's interesting, although um, obviously we were in a recession uh, through some of 2009 when Obama was president. It just began under under Bush, but it did it did proceed and continue under Obama. Having having said that, we do have Biden on the record yesterday excuse me, Monday, saying we're not going to be in a recession. So the question then is, uh, that's why they're carrying water. Biden said we're not going to be in a recession. That This is now like, it's an analogy I've used before, but it's like Frank Drebin in the naked gun standing in front of the fireworks factory that has exploded and is sending fireworks all up in the sky as a cop waving his arm saying, Stand back. Nothing to see here. There's nothing to see here. Don't look. There's nothing to see here. And there's like, you know, fireworks going off behind his head. President of the United States said on Monday, we're not going to be in a recession. Thursday, the data come out. We are, you know, all but in a recession. Uh, So um, a, a guy who is suffering from the general perspective of maybe two-thirds of Democrats also, that he is out of touch or not really somebody who should run for office again uh, in two years, uh, has made a pronouncement that the real world has now 
taken and thrown in the garbage can, a little like transitory inflation or something like that. That's really not good. So they need to be able to continue to say that we're not in recession because then what Bi- then Biden is like a uh, a joke. But what Biden did this week is the real the the literal definition of of being out of touch, right? I mean, it's Marine Antoinetteism or something. It's um, it's a very very strange thing to have happened. It doesn't matter, I think, ultimately, which I think is the point that you guys are making. It doesn't matter whether we're technically in a recession or we're not in a recession. The experience that people are having isn't of recessionary factors, right? I mean, the thing that people are suffering from is inflation. Um, And, you know, you can use all kinds of words. You can use inflation. You can talk about recession. You can talk about slowdowns. You can talk about productivity declines. You can talk about all kinds of things. But the the realistic, real-world lived experience of people is that prices are going up and their wages are not are not keeping pace and their purchasing power uh, is declining and their debt is increasing and their home values may start falling, particularly with the fact that the Fed has to increase interest rates in order to do what it can to, to, to choke off the stagflation that seems to be heading our way. And the president... And his people have nothing good to say about it. I mean, nothing helpful to them to say about it. Well, we don't want to get into the second part of this podcast just sure. yet. But go ahead. Maybe the the uh, cavalry's on the way because we got uh, news late last night that uh, the infirmed Joe Manchin, who's down with COVID, uh, has reached a deal with Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer over a very, very skinny Build Back Better bill, something along those lines. They're not calling it that. They certainly can't call it that. Um, But it's roughly, according to these very rough outlines that no one's been privy to, uh, calls for about $433 billion in new spending, the majority of which is focused on clean energy and climate change and handouts to Democratic constituencies. Um, and also uh, decreasing healthcare costs by letting Medicare negotiate drug prices. Um, that's offset by around $730 billion over the next decade in tax increases, uh, including minimum taxes on corporations and giving the IRS more money to uh, investigate you and harass you and get, get money out of your pocket. Um, this seems to contradict just about everything that Joe Manchin has said that he wants to see. He wants to see deficit reduction, which he gets in this bill to a degree. But he also doesn't think it's the right time to be flooding the market with more uh, government investment in the private sector, considering that's what's contributing primarily to the inflationary pressure that we're feeling right now. So the only thing that I can see that has perhaps changed the gentleman's mind is that we're not calling it Build Back Better anymore. We're calling it the Inflation Reduction Act. How this okay. reduces inflation, I don't quite know. But I mean, this is a very uncharitable interpretation. But if that is all it took, the man is an empty suit. Okay, here's the thing. There are elements of this bill that are going to drive Democrats and particularly House Democrats crazy, including uh, a uh, let a uh, the fact that there will be some... Uh, drilling on federal lands for natural gas. And Manchin says he has an agreement with Schumer and Pelosi 
for um, uh, pipeline uh, right of way uh, to pass sometime before the end of the fiscal year at the end of September, thus providing a means by which his own state, West Virginia, can frack and get the stuff out of the ground and to the Gulf of Mexico for export. Um, for a bill that is supposedly the landmark event in the history of climate change. Again, we have the media carrying water for the administration on the on the fact that uh, on on how to define a recession, and we have the most hilariously breathless writing about the virtues of the bill in question. Which is not a done deal by any means. I mean, you, you outline a progressive climate objection. deal. It is not being called. <laughs> they are calling right. it a climate deal, and what it basically is is a whole lot of boondoggle money being yeah. thrown at private firms to get wind and solar and 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 people getting tax credits to buy electric vehicles. Although on that, I will say they did. Manchin got his way on the electric vehicle credit because it was it, it's only now the proposal is that it's only for people who make less than seventy five thousand dollars a year. So it's not all the AOC and rich right. people who you know want to buy their tool around in a Tesla. He did get a few of his. I, tr- I truly think the environmentalist left will take what they can get at this stage. They'll they'll right. they'll suck it up. But I, this is not a done deal because this raises taxes on corporations, which will be passed on to you. It raises consumer costs at a time when consumer costs are out of control. Kirsten Cinema is not on board yet for a right. reason. OK, and there's but weeks let, to, go let, to message this thing. Let's talk a little about, again, the way this is being framed is being framed as a landmark piece of legislation it's a couple hundred billion dollars and you know that's real money right uh, granted it's real money though it's not a trillion and a half which was joe manchin's target for build back better it's not 2.2 trillion which is what the white house and the you know congressional negotiators kind of got to before they gave it up it's a couple hundred billion dollars but Senate Democrats estimated that the legislation would enable the United States to cut greenhouse gas emissions to 40 percent below 2005 levels by 2030. That is eight years from now. Okay, that is eight years from now. How? By um, hold on, let's get some more terms here. There's money for a bank to help with environmental diseases in poor communities of color. 60 billion to address the disproportionate burden of pollution on low-income communities. 27 billion for a green bank aimed at delivering financial support to clean energy projects and 20 billion for programs to cut emissions in the agricultural sector. So we have boondoggle money for farming, we have boondoggle money for a green bank. We have boondoggle money to rain shower down on districts with 70 to 80 percent Democratic support. Um, and again, like, OK, uh, it's not a trillion and a half or two and a half trillion or three and a half trillion. So we should be grateful for that. But are we really am I really going to have to sit here and hear that throwing corporate welfare at wind farm companies is going to save the planet. 
<laughs> no, you won't I mean, actually, because in three months, it'll be entirely forgotten. We'll still be on a path to uh, civilizational collapse, and we're just not doing nearly enough to prevent it. So yes, you will have to keep hearing that. Great. Um, I'm so glad. And by the way, you know, when the uh, income limit on getting the tax credit for electrical vehicles is, is electric vehicles is kind of funny because so you have to make less than $75,000 a year in order to get the a $7,500 tax credit to purchase a new electric vehicle. Okay, electric vehicles cost forty to sixty thousand dollars. You make seventy five thousand dollars a year as a household income. You get seventy five hundred. Yeah, you're gonna buy an electric car. No, you're not. Right, <laughs> it's not gonna happen. So right. again, but it, the bill is probably packed with these little weird sort of ideological signaling mechanisms to try to get probably to try to get the more extreme you know environmental types to vote for it because it has all these trappings I mean there's a I, I assume once we dig down deeper into it we're going to find a lot of these and and people like Pete Buttigieg are not going to be pushing this kind of stuff as as transformative because it's not it's it's again it's marketing but they are going to push it as transformative it's being pushed as transformative like yeah I mean, I mean right uh David David uh Leonhardt the Times is uh you know I don't know what you call him. Like he writes the morning newsletter, uh, has written a lot of good stuff on COVID, economically very liberal. Um, you know, basically until yesterday, the Democratic Party seemed as if we're on the verge of squandering a major opportunity to combat climate change. But yesterday, Manchin changed his mind. He announced that he had agreed to include hundreds of billions of dollars for climate and energy programs and a bill that would also, would also reduce prescription drug prices, raise taxes on the affluent, and shrink the federal deficit. This would be a very big deal. Okay? Um, so they want you to think that this is a transformative bill, and it is in one sense. I will give you one way in which it is transformative. This is the first time since he assumed the powers of the majority leader of the Senate in January that Chuck Schumer has acted like he knows his ass from his elbow. He played a very interesting game this week, and he did something that you would expect a legislative master and maneuver to pull off. He and Manchin must have had a deal earlier than we know, uh, Mitch McConnell, Senate Minority Leader, said that he would block any passage of another big boondoggle bill, the CHIPS bill, the industrial policy bill, to throw billions upon billions of dollars at chip makers to have a domestic uh, superconductor industry that we will all be paying for. Um, literally industrial policy, something that the they got a bunch of Republicans to vote for it. I think 14 Republicans voted for this bill. Um, again, like this is actually going to make a semiconductor industry. G give me, give me a break. It's like fifty billion dollars. So you know, again, Mazel Tov to you that you're going to get your subvention from the federal government, which always works so well, as we know from, you know, Solyndra and others. Um, but uh, McConnell said he would not, you know, he would block cloture on the chips bill if the Democrats went forward with some version of Build Back Better. And then Schumer said, okay. And so they passed the CHIPS bill. And then four hours later, Schumer and Manchin announced that they had had a deal on the Climate Change Inflation Reduction Act 
can of I? 2023. So yes. But on the on the House side, so again, in terms of messaging, particularly with the upcoming midterms, the, the Democrats are still in a in a pickle with in terms of what a, some of their members are going to be able to go back and tell constituents they're actually doing for real problems that average Americans feel on a daily basis, not just inflationary problems, but crime. So the crime bill, remember, and Biden's been touting this, like we're going to pass this, you know, all these grants to police departments. We're not going to defund the police. That's not that's not right. We're we're pro-police. Well, they the uh they just shelved the vote on the on that bill. Pelosi didn't have the votes for the, I think it was Abigail Spamberger and Gottheimer. You know, she had, they had this bipartisan that this this Democratic sponsored bill uh to uh increase funding for police departments. Okay, they were calling it like a public safety bill. Uh she didn't have the votes, so she just shelved that. And that's actually something that I think a lot of individual members who are in districts where voters are not so happy with the defund the police uh rhetoric and the rising crime rates, they needed that. They needed to be able to go back and say, this is something we're doing for you. We are not the party of defund the police. So now that's off the table too. So um, I'm sorry, Abe, please continue. Just a, a, something we haven't mentioned yet that's in the bill. And I think it may actually end up being a problem for Schumer, um, which is closing the carried interest loophole. Um, might this not drive the New York's highest pack taxpayers out of the state? Um, this is this is uh, they're ending a loophole that would that had allowed um, uh, uh, people working as investors and 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 the like uh, to to pay um, taxes as um, capital gains, uh, and now they have which which was uh, at a lower rate. Now they have to pay this at um, as salary or wages. Um, why wouldn't they go to a state where at least they don't have to? be burdened with uh, state income tax on top of it. That's interesting. I mean, this is reconciliation, right? So every amendment has to be submitted separately uh, and through their their individual committees. It's an arcane process, but each amendment gets to be voted on. So it's possible that that becomes an obstacle. And I mean, the, the hardball that they played on chips, notwithstanding, there's plenty of issues here that can block this thing. First of all, like I said, Cinema's not yet on board. She might be eventually, but you need all 50. There's kind of the X factor when it comes to COVID attendance. Now we have the the whip. Durbin is out, uh, and they only have a week to do this. They're up against the clock. They they leave on I think August eighth, and they're not back until after Labor Day. And you still have to get all this through, not just the parliamentarian, but the news cycle. I mean, we have this giant recessionary signal right in front of us. Tomorrow we're going to get numbers about personal income. It's they're going to have to justify this, and they have to do it in a very short window. And if they miss this window. I don't think they get it back in the fall. It's the same problem um, they had with Build Back Better. I mean, there are tax increases here. So on the one hand, we have two things that are uh, absolute no-nos at a time of recession and inflation, right? One is One are tax increases, which are an incredibly stupid thing to enter into at a time of recession. Uh, and the second is, you know, I mean, the stuff about carried interest and, you know, uh, the, the other Democratic big desideratum is restoring the state and local tax deduction that uh, the Trump tax bill in 2017 eliminated, um, which is something for New York and Connecticut and California and every place that actually voted for Biden. Um, uh, this was a net tax increase. 
Uh, that appears not to be in it, but, you know, d- Democrats in the House could insist on it. Manchin specifically says he's against that. And obviously, though he is getting suddenly celebrated for his, you know, relenting on his cause of, you know, not making inflation worse and not spending like a like a drunken sailor, um, if the House is challenging... If the House says, we're not just a rubber stamp for you, Joe Manchin, we're going to put X, Y, and Z into the reconciliation package, which is what Noah's talking about, where everything has to be scored on its, you know, the level of its, uh, you know, effect on the federal budget and debt. Um, If they put it in there, Manchin could walk away again. I mean, um, you know, he is doing a, he is, he is spending his time as a Democratic senator from a state that went for Trump by 40 points, doing this incredible dance, uh, you know. It's going to get so uncomfortable for him in the next week. I don't I don't know how he he threads this needle. He spent the last year saying that the economy couldn't couldn't absorb another injection of billions of dollars like this to say nothing of raising the cost of your your you know, your goods based on the this well, minimum tax they're putting on on uh, on corporations. How does he justify this? Well, it's not just this one bill because then you have to talk about the chips bill, which is which is another governmental infusion of money, uh, you know, into into the economy, um, you know, in a in a completely inflationary fashion. So there are two bills at once suddenly. As we go into a, you know, as we as we as we are trying to combat inflation and the Fed is raising interest rates by 75 basis points, the same day that they do that, two pieces of legislation, one sort of passes the Senate and the other, there's an agreement on its passage of the Senate. And I think the total cost is like 400 some odd billion dollars in one fell swoop on one day. So congratulations to Jay Powell and the and the Fed governors for uh, being given a clear signal that they're going to have to do this again and maybe even more dramatically at the next meeting because the federal government is literally now, I'm, or, you know, the executive and legislative branches are literally at cross purposes with the goal of trying to, you know, uh, create a soft landing or, you know, choke off inflation. Like this is hard landing time. Here's a great idea. Let's spend a lot of money. Let's let's pour money into the economy to well, claiming have, it's yeah. going to fight inflation. That's the weird. Like, let's just give it a label that it that we're fighting inflation. We're bringing inflation down, but actually we're going to increase it with this yeah. kind of spending. Well, we're going to we're going to we're going to we're going to fight inflation by, you know, changing the carried interest provision, uh, you know, in, in the tax code and empowering the IRS to collect more revenue and to create this kind of minimum uh, tax, which is kind of an interesting it's kind of interesting because again talk about cross purposes so they want to create conditions under which corporations uh that use tax breaks and tax incentives and tax rules to lower their profit margin under so that they don't have to pay they're not at 21% and don't have to pay taxes at the same level but if they it doesn't make any sense because those incentives exist 
have been put in place by the federal government to get them to do other things, to get them to, you know, I don't know what, but I mean, those ins- they're using legal incentives to lower their tax burden, and now they're going to be taxed regardless. So why would they continue to do the things that they are being incentivized to do that are supposedly part of, you know, the, you know, government policy, uh, trying to direct them to a better, you know, end for the American people. It's all madness, but it's politically very interesting. That's what I'm saying. Schumer has actually scored a legislative maneuver success. He seemed very hapless before now. This is at least sort of an interesting touche moment for Mitch McConnell, where it now <laughs> appears he has an, you know, he has an interlocutor who has some at least, I don't know, uh what would you call it? Like strategic or tactical skills in 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 maneuvering. Um there's something else interesting about this, yeah. I think, at least slightly, which is that this happened while Joe Biden was completely sidelined with with COVID. Uh, and he seemed to have been completely done with the prospect that this could happen. Um, I think part of what could throw a wrench in the works is um, Biden's full recovery and getting involved and having one of it thro- having one of his disastrous meetings, uh, you know, where he where he give, gives away someone's bargaining position uh, without their permission and so on. You know, I hadn't thought of that. And that is absolutely brilliant. I mean, you know, how many times did that happen last year? Three or four? I mean, Trump did it too, by the way. I mean, you remember Trump like would have a meeting and then he would say, I'm not going to do that. The whole purpose of the meeting was to do what he said he didn't want to do. And um, and and he would sort of throw everything in the garbage can. And Biden did that with Build Back Better at least three times. And certainly on a daily basis, his White House was... Um, was signaling that it wanted the house to use build back better. You know, they wanted to, they wanted to make the infrastructure bill that was a bipartisan, would have been a and eventually was a bipartisan success as leverage to pass the build back better bill that was never going to pass. So, uh, you know, uh, God knows what he'll do. I mean, I think that's a very, uh, that's a very interesting, very interesting thing i am i am fascinated by the bipolar nature switching topics here the bipolar nature of the coverage of the war in ukraine i sort of alluded to this the other day but it is absolutely nauseating following this i mean i don't mean nauseating like because i'm morally offended i mean like nauseating like destabilizing and making you feel unsteady and sick to your stomach by the the ukrainians are losing the russians are winning. no you know what the russians are losing the ukrainians are really and you know what the 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 weaponry that we've been giving them is unbelievably effective um uh it's like i believe i'll i'll believe I don't know what to believe. I I want to believe the things that say that, you know, it's all turned around or that, you know, the Russian advance really wasn't much of an advance or something like that. But I, I find myself very, as I say, nauseated by, uh, 
by the by the kind of the way in which we do, we go from one extreme to the other like let's play taps for ukraine and now we have you know the Biden administration about to announce that they believe that there have been 75,000 casualties on the russian side which would be absolutely staggering not deaths but but deaths and injuries taken together i mean a staggering toll uh for a war that's been going on for what four and a half months has, is it even for is it five months now february 24 Mar- okay so february to march march so it's five months Seventy-five thousand casualties and this incredible uh and then um uh, a group of Yale academics say that, uh, in fact, the sanctions and the war are having unbelievably bad effects on the Russian economy that the Russians are trying to cover up, but that they can't be covered up. Anybody have any thoughts here? Yes. The first okay. mistake anybody makes in following the war in Ukraine is following it via U.S. media outlets, which are reliably, and I've been saying this since the beginning of the conflict, roughly reliably two weeks behind events on the ground and apocalyptic, apoplectic rather, when covering those events without the benefit of understanding what's happening on the ground right now. And there's sort of always a retrospective element to journalism, but nevertheless, um, I've always found it much more easy. Uh, uh, Institute for the Study of War has been very good on this since the beginning, but um, the British Ministry of Defense is particularly helpful um, and obviously does relates events on the ground in a clinical manner that sort of uh, reduces the passion associated with reporting on them in, in media, conventional media outlets. And it's a mixed picture. Um, but what I've been saying you know, for a, a long time seems rather clear that the strategic objective that Russia had initially was to break the state uh, is, is out of reach. That strategic objective is not in reach anymore. They will not achieve it. So what they're looking for are tactical achievements, tactical victories. It's been reduced to attempting to carve off as much territory as they can in the in the country's east and Donbass region and around the Sea of Azov coast, to a lesser degree around the coast of the Black Sea, um, but their Ukrainian forces are uh, they've they've held Mykolaiv, they're advancing on Kherson, which is the first city that ever fell to the Russian advance and is the most important city, frankly, in their control presently, um, and the Russians are struggling to hold the gains that they have made in the north and the east around the Donbass region. Uh, it's been that way for some time. It's a game of inches. Uh, but the Ukrainians are making significant advances with these um, multiple launch rocket systems that we've sent them, and they're destroying arms depots. And now you have uh, Defense Minister Shoigu on television yesterday saying the goal of this campaign is to restore the Soviet Union, at which point we'll be safe. Literally, he said, we're going to bring make the Soviet Union back. Um, that's not going to happen. It's just not going to happen. It's out of reach. So in that sense, Ukraine is doing far better than anybody expected they would do at the beginning of this year, far better than I think a lot of us expected they would do, uh, and is revealing the extent to which Moscow is, is really genuinely um, engaged in fantasy, uh, a fantasy of what the objectives are for this campaign, and in a way that's heartening because they're, if they're that detached from reality on the ground, um, that creates openings for Ukraine's defense and, and our objectives. We should say what our objectives are. I think Washington should probably say we want Ukraine to win, 
we're engaged in this debate amongst ourselves about what's escalatory, what's not escalatory, what what conditions we want to see on the ground in the uh, in the event of a negotiated ceasefire or some victory in some form. We don't we don't know because no one ever talks about that. And they probably should. I think they're afraid to establish benchmarks that we may not meet. But nevertheless, if we want Ukraine to win, we should probably act that way. I mean, look, we sent them these HIMARS missiles. Um, it's, an ML, it's an MLRS, a different form of MLRS. Okay, you can't just say Multiple MLRS. launch rocket system. Right, and they're, they are spectacularly accurate. So as a result, you can do the maximum amount of damage to an individual given target uh, than you know any other you know uh far you know it's not far range but you know any other many many mile away efforts to you know strike back um we spent you know i don't know several billion dollars we've we've sent several billion dollars in aid to ukraine in military terms and we are not willing to say we want them to win that's bananas so we're sending them aid so that they should there should be a stalemate so that it should be like they should basically spend three years in the, you know, in the Marne or in the sum, you know, like just standing on the battlefield, not moving an inch either way. That's that's great. But the 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 deeper trouble with our not saying it is that there's a reason behind our not saying it. And is the reason because we're not that confident. And so we don't we don't want to be uh Sort of, you know, called out in the in the event that that they don't win, um, or is it that they don't that the the administration doesn't want to be involved in what that would commit us to, or thinks that there's a negotiated settlement here at some point and doesn't want to discourage the Ukrainian uh, resistance by acknowledging the likelihood that it's they're not going to liberate all the territories that are currently under occupation or have been under occupation since 2014, which is Kiev's stated goal. I, 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 this is all, it's all very interesting. It's semantic. We obviously want Ukraine to win, whatever that means. However you want to define victory, the Ukrainians can define it as restoring the borders of Ukraine before 2014. We, we would simply define it as the Russians stopping, right? They would, meaning the Russians just, stop with their forward aggression they would they retreat and withdraw from the battlefield and stop attacking and that would be an enormous victory for the ukrainians the ukrainians you know against this supposed you know first rank military power against you know the world's most barbaric goon uh you know the little engine that could they stood up and they and they they sent them away i mean that's victory how what the parameters of the negotiation that will follow inevitably will be is a different question. There are always negotiations after, you know, I mean, unconditional, you know, in a civil, in a, in a true civil war, the unconditional surrender is that the effort to overturn the government, you know, as in the North versus the South, ends that that structure collapses and the restoration of the previous order takes place. But these are two separate countries and we're just looking to get the Ukrainians into a position where they make the Russians say, uncle, say, we made a mistake doing this. We're stopping now. They could then do it and then keep, 
two-thirds of what they had in 2014, or even all of what they had in 2014, Ukraine would still win. Ukraine would still have humiliated them. They would have been humiliated, and Ukraine would look like, you know, a monumental victory for the forces of right. So, I, I, you know, the, 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 the terms are not really what's, what's important here. Or am I being, like, too Pollyanna-ish? I don't know. None of us know. That's right. part of the problem. Right. We can only say what's happening on the ground. What's happening on the ground is a mixed bag. There's Russians are doing their best to hold on to their gains in the southeast and northeast and east of the country, and Ukrainians are advancing, however slowly, on those positions. Uh, I haven't seen Russians make a, a significant advance in many weeks. Now, maybe they will. And at which point, two weeks after that, we'll hear about how Ukraine is losing. Right. So, so what you're saying One of the is, ignore, that the problem ignore is the American, ignore, ignore the American media. That's what you're saying. Definitely ignore American media on this story for, for the most part, um, with a few exceptions. There are notable exceptions of people who are very good on this, <clears throat> and I don't want to make light of it. But generally, the reporting has not been up to date when it comes to the, you know, the front page analysis. You know, if you want to go to like the minute by minute, hour by hour updates, Situations in like the New York Times and the Washington Post and mainstream media outlets, those are usually pretty good. I'll give you a real update of what's what's happening in real time. Um, but, you know, the grand strategic 30,000 foot perspectives <laughs> always emphasize themes that are that are just not relevant anymore. They were relevant and are not anymore. It's something that I've observed, I think, pretty consistently. I mean, I think that's an important point that, you know, if you want to know what happened today, you can find out what happened today. If you want to find out what the meaning of what happened today is, right. there is absolutely no reason to listen to some reporter who doesn't know Jack about, you know, I mean, has he read loud, you know, has he read Sun Tzu? Has he, does, has he studied no, has he read John Keegan? Does he know about, you know, the, the structures of, of battles and how territory are held and all of that? Like, that's not something you can observe what you're observing with your eyes and get the information in place. What the what happens during wars is something that requires deep historical study. I also think part of the reason the fog is so thick uh, this time around for us is because while we're involved and while we, while we hope deeply to, for, for Ukraine's victory, uh, Americans aren't fighting there and it's different. Um, the, Af the, Afghan, the Afghanistan war and the, the Iraq war, um, everything that happened was vitally important the moment it happened and was, was known and spread uh, the American chain of command and and the the American media who was there, and among you know those who were in touch with with who, the Americans who were on the ground there. Fair enough. So uh, thanks for listening. Uh, we'll be back tomorrow, though. Christine is out tomorrow and next week, so we will labor to get on without her as she she catches the rays elsewhere in the United States. An but, undisclosed location. Yes, but Noah and <laughs> Noah and Abe and I will, will be here and you know, not as good, but what can we do? Uh, so for Christine, 
Abe and Noam, John Podoretz, keep the candle burning.